I'm ABC's Aaron Katursky. This is Bringing America Back, What You Need to Know. This week, we learned the fight against COVID-19 cost 102,000 lives and 40 million jobs in this country. America confronts this new disease that quite remarkably has intersected with the nation's oldest ill, the disparate treatment of people of color. It makes for an uncertain weekend as protests simmer over the death in Minneapolis of George Floyd. What the world has witnessed since the killing of George Floyd on Monday has been a visceral pain, a community trying to understand who we are and where we go from here. Minnesota Governor Tim Walz, who activated the National Guard to help restore order. A week ago, those same troops were helping organize tests for coronavirus. The episode has given first responders that people have been relying on during the pandemic a bruise. It's a horrendous act that we all condemned in policing throughout the country. But there's 800,000 law enforcement officers throughout this country that are paying the price for the actions of those four cops in Minneapolis. That is NYPD Chief of Department Terry Monahan. The Minneapolis officer who knelt on Floyd's neck was taken into custody, charged with third-degree murder, leaving a nation reeling, broke, and confused, confronting yet another incident of different treatment on account of race. It's something Dr. Richard Besser at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is trying to fix, at least in the space of health care. In America today, um, unfortunately, how you have done so far in this pandemic uh, depend, has depended a large part uh, on your income, uh, on the color of your skin, uh, what occupation you're in, and whether you uh, had, had enough resources to be able to, to stay home when it wasn't safe to go out. For many people, that just hasn't been an opportunity. It's a reality the foundation has tried to address in just released principles for reopening and recovering from COVID-19. What are those about? Yeah, you know, clearly every community in America is experiencing harm. But, but certain groups and certain communities are, are experiencing more harm. We've seen, we've seen the data where it's been collected and black Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans are dying at rates far, that far exceed their proportion of the population. And if we go forward uh, in the same manner that we've gone to date, we're going to see the same groups getting hit harder and harder. We're going to be seeing people of color hit hard, uh, lower income communities, both in, in cities and in rural America. But it, it doesn't have to be. You know, if we're if we're collecting data and information and we're breaking it down by race and ethnicity and gender and disability and neighborhood, and we're able to see particular neighborhoods that are getting hit hard, then public health can can move in and say, okay, what's going on here? And and as people go back to work, making sure that people have the protective equipment that's necessary to reduce the, the, the risk to them and to and to others. That has to be a, a, a big commitment. And I'm, I'm not seeing these things taking place at the level that they should be. So going forward, you know, I worry that, that the 100,000 marker that we've just passed, that solemn marker, that we are going to see other markers that are equally solemn and, and equally, uh, equally unfathomable. Why are the things you're talking about, some of which seem rudimentary, not happening? You know, it, it, it has to come from the top. It has to be viewed not as a partisan uh, action, but as a fundamentally American thing. You know, I wear my mask 
because I care about you. And if I happen to be infected and not know it, I want to protect you. You wear your mask because you care about me. That's not hard. That, that's something we can all do for, for each other. Um, and, and if we can't get to that point where we're all in this together and we're practicing social distancing and we're washing our hands and we're looking to see who needs our help and we're reaching out, if we can't get to that position, this is going to continue and we're going to lose lives that, that could have been saved. Dr. Richard Besser at the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Health workers have been through the ringer every day of this pandemic, enduring relentless pressure, anxiety, and fear, and it is weighing on them. Dr. Jay Bott, a Chicago physician and an ABC News contributor, is with us now. This pandemic has really brought healthcare workers anxiety, depression, sleep disturbances. It's a really stark situation. I, you know, an estimated 400 physicians died by suicide last year. Countless others had serious thoughts of it. And the rate of suicide among doctors uh, is twice that of the general population. And in fact, you know, we've seen that it's among uh, the highest in this profession against all others. And uh, we've seen it impact people during this pandemic uh, where doctors have faced uh, the effects of trauma of seeing uh, colleagues and, and loved ones pass or be impacted and their patients die. And, you know, and that happened to me uh, during my residency training. And so it, it sort of reminds me of what a, a dangerous place it can be. I was going to say, this is personal for you. Yeah, it is very personal. I was a second year resident uh, in Boston and in a month with the ICU and my fifth patient had just died. And these patients are really sick. And so you do all that you can, uh, but it just doesn't sometimes work out. And uh, it really hit me hard. I um, didn't know what to do. I think, you know, I didn't know necessarily where to turn. It really left me in a place of, I got to just power through it. And every night at home, I'd, I'd cry and, and feel horrible. And until it was uh, friends and family, um, you know, were able to move uh, my mindset and uh, I could ask for help. Coronavirus has caused such overwhelming death that physicians and nurses have encountered in the hospital. What is it that should be done to minimize the risks to their mental health? You know, I think sometimes people say, oh, just be stronger or have more resilience. Uh, and I think I think we got to start with just recognizing and naming that sort of this kind of trauma exists when people lose patients and colleagues that they work with. It impacts you. It hits you in a really difficult way. And I think one of the, the things we can do um, after just recognizing and naming it is recalibrating, reorienting our employee assistant programs to support those impacted by COVID. Dr. Jay Bott calling for health systems to support workers by helping them take better care of their physical and emotional health. And it's something, it turns out, we can all contribute to. Rich Friedman is with us. He's on the Board of Trustees at Mount Sinai. And you've started a new campaign called Fit for the Frontline. So Fit for the Frontline is a campaign that I came up with the idea about three weeks ago. At its simplest, it's a tribute and a deserved tribute to healthcare workers around the world. First, it was an idea just to raise money from Mount Sinai as a tribute to our frontline. But then I said it would be much more impactful if we could make this a national scale and get other academic medical centers to do it all in a unified manner. 
So what this is, is it's a way for people to give a truly deserved tribute to all healthcare workers, as doctors, nurses, janitors, do something um, over the next two and a half weeks, and then get people to sponsor you. Uh, and when the proceeds of which would go to your hospital of your choice. So in other words, if you might run a marathon in tribute to somebody or, or, or a cause. Correct. Having a united tribute to them as a way to say thank you and mean it and to actually give hard dollars that people can use for whether it's um, to cover bills, whether it's for their mental health care. Uh, and what Mount Sinai's doing is we're devoting all the proceeds here to a center we've set up for basically PTSD. It's a center for stress, resilience, and personal growth to provide interventions and help to all frontline workers who are going to be suffering mental health issues as a result of what they've experienced over the last uh, 10 weeks. How do people participate? Very good question. So um, I'll tell you what my activity is. Uh, it is a very individually driven activity, but I've gotten Goldman Sachs to be a, one of the lead sponsors. And we've put out a challenge uh, to all employees of Goldman Sachs, 40,000. Uh, and at Goldman, the challenge is going to be a cumulative amount of either miles run or biked or minutes devoted to exercise over the next two and a half weeks. So you can pick any activity. And that's the beauty of this. So I was a college basketball player, and I've, sh I've chosen to shoot 1,000 shots over the next two and a half weeks. I sent out a plea to 500 of my nearest and dearest friends, some who I haven't talked to in years. So uh, I, I am shameless in that sense. Uh, and I've asked them to pledge anywhere from 10 cents to $10 for every shot I make. If you want to participate, use the hashtag FitForTheFrontline and dedicate your activity accordingly. I'm Aaron Katursky. Now over to Amy Robach. Thank you, Aaron. Joining me now is ABC News Chief Medical Correspondent Dr. Jen Ashton. And Dr. Jen, yesterday the CDC noted on its website that the virus can now be found in untreated wastewater. This more than a month after others around the country detected coronavirus in sewage. So what do we know at this right, point? Right, exactly. And not just around the country, but other parts of the world. So first of all, historical perspective. We have found and detected other viruses in wastewater, things like polio and norovirus. So not really a surprise that we can detect this coronavirus in wastewater. Also, coronavirus has been found in urine and stool of infected patients. So that's obviously how it gets to the untreated wastewater. And studies out of both the U.S. and the Netherlands have been able to detect this virus about a week before they first see a clinical case in humans. So right now, water utility companies in the U.S., Houston, Oregon, Boston, among others, are already working on lab tests and analysis of their wastewater to see if it can possibly give them an early warning sign for community uh, mm. cases of coronavirus. Yeah, because it's really interesting. It is fascinating, and the CDC makes it very important to note that there is no evidence that the virus has been found right. in drinking Correct. water. And so the wastewater is helpful helpful to us how specifically? Well, what the potential hope and excitement, whoever thought we'd be so excited about wastewater, <laughs> is that it can be an early detection tool or a way to do surveillance in communities. We heard one of the members of the Coronavirus Task Force talk about it as a way to possibly do surveillance in schools and colleges. Mm -hmm. And again, we don't think the virus can be spread via human waste 
or water at this point. So that's the working theory. All right. And what do we still need to learn about this? Well, a lot. First of all, we don't yet know if the amount of coronavirus that they're able to pick up in wastewater is then associated with the severity of disease in that community. So that will be important. We also don't know where in the in the water treatment facility to actually do this testing. Do you test the sludge? Do you test the water as it's first coming in? And of course, anytime there's a big potential um, like this, there also has to be costs calculated. And so that that may be a major factor. All but, right. But it's exciting. People are working on it. Excited about wastewater <laughs> right. on this Friday. Thank you, Dr. Jen. Well, we turn now to ABC's Rachel Scott, who's in Washington, D.C., with all the latest headlines for us. Hey, Amy, these are some of the developments making headlines today as that unrest over police brutality escalated in the Twin Cities and across the nation overnight. Twitter flagging a tweet by President Trump saying it violates the platform's rules about, quote, glorifying violence. The president's words, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, tripping that Twitter caution. The president's tweet now only visible if users click on the flag, the latest battle in the escalating war of words between the president and the social media giant. And now to the alert from the Labor Department when it comes to protecting workers from the coronavirus. The agency issuing steps employers can take to implement social distancing in workplaces across the nation. Staggering break times and creating space among workers are among the new recommendations. And now to the hope for sports fans in the Lone Star State. The Texas Tribune reporting the governor is enacting a measure allowing spectators to gather at 25 percent capacity at outdoor sporting venues. Leagues will first have to apply and get approval from state health officials. But, Amy, this is certainly some good news for those hungry sports fans out there. Amy? It certainly is, Rachel. Thank you so much. Well, state of emergency, a third straight night of violence in Minneapolis following the death of a black man in police custody. The incident all caught on camera, the white officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck, Floyd screaming, I can't breathe, and then suddenly no longer moving. That officer and three others have been fired, but calls for their arrests intensify. The the tragedy sparking national outrage and protests and a rising call for justice. Here to tell us more is a leading voice of the community, Minneapolis Council Vice President Andrea Jenkins. And Andrea, thank you so much for being with us. As you know, a third straight night of rioting, the destruction of the city's third police precinct after it was evacuated. Clearly, so much outrage, so much frustration. How is the city government responding to all of it? Well, Amy, um, you know, I will I will lead with offering condolences to the Floyd family once again. Uh, we are addressing this situation in the best way that that we can, um, given all of the chaos, all of the unrest, all of the anger and pain in this community. But we must take control of the situation and and restore some order back in the city of Minneapolis. Yeah, absolutely. And this has been uh, an interesting twist. The ABC affiliate in Minneapolis is now reporting that George Floyd and the officer in question, Derek Chauvin, both worked security at the same club. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, it's a uh, it's a club that it's, it's really ironic. Uh, the club is probably either on fire or boarded up with the windows broken out because it is directly across the street from the third precinct. And apparently they worked there together for for many years. And so I I can't even fathom how that officer could 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 do that to any human being, let alone someone who he has known and worked with or 
several years. It wasn't months or weeks or days. It was it was multiple years. And so uh, when I learned that news, I I was just horrified even even more. Yeah, it's a chilling development for sure, to say the very least. You've said racism needs to be declared a public health emergency. What do you mean by that? What would you like to see happen? Well, by declaring racism um, a public health emergency, uh, it provides us the opportunity, A, to name the virus that it has infected our American institutions for centuries. But in addition, it gives us an opportunity to create policies that can address uh, some of these issues. You can't really um, begin to cure a disease until you know what that disease is and are able to identify that it is brain cancer or lung cancer. And then you can figure out a um, a, a remedy, a cure for that disease. And so um, I, I think the first step in, in combating racism is to, to name it. There has been a huge um, just pushback in, in our society to, to not even think about this, this word. People get offended when you say the word, but it's the reality. And, and we saw it play out um, this morning when the CNN newscaster was arrested. The black CNN newscaster was arrested and, and his white colleague was not. It, it, it's, it's an infectious disease, uh, much like the coronavirus, and it is in every single part of the United States. This is not just a Minneapolis problem. This is a United States problem. We saw that even uh, this morning when the president tweeted his racist comments. I mean, I, yeah. Yeah, name it, acknowledge it, and then look for a cure. As we head into the weekend, Andrea, what message do you have for your city, for those who may be planning to head back into the streets tonight? I'm, I'm begging people to not gather in the streets. Uh, we are in the midst of a pandemic um, and we cannot allow the city to be further damaged. The, the National Guard is here. The, the state troopers are here. Our Minneapolis Police Department, uh, the St. Paul Police Department. We, we've got to take control of this situation. I really uh, implore people to uh, stay home. Now is not the time. The anger has been expressed and we're going to have to take control. And and that, um, you know, hopefully will not lead to any injuries or any loss of life. Uh, But we can't allow this uh, type of um, um, civil unrest to continue. Well, we are certainly wishing the very best for you, for your city, and of course for the Floyd family. City Council Vice President Andrea Jenkins, thank you so much for being with us during these very difficult times. Thank you, Amy. Up next, when we come back, Dr. Jen Ashton with answers to your medical questions. And there are a number of choices out there for family fun this summer, some considered riskier than others when it comes to coronavirus. Becky Worley is going to break that down for us. Stay with us.
And welcome back to What You Need to Know. We have Dr. Jen Ashton here, and masks are the new normal now. And there are some improvements being made to some of them. This really caught my attention, Amy. There's some research being done at Stanford with their engineers and in their medical school to make these N95s. This is not for the average general public. These are for healthcare workers, first responders. There are many different styles, but they have to be fit tested for your face. And have you ever tried to wear one? No, I haven't. They're not fun. Um, and they can cause erosion on the nose. They can actually make it difficult to breathe. A recent study found that wearing one of these N95s can actually reduce the amount of oxygen by 20%. Wow. And these healthcare workers are wearing these for prolonged periods of time, finding it difficult to breathe. So Stanford researchers trying to innovate a new way to actually pump in oxygen and take out the carbon dioxide, um, which can prolong the use of these because when they get wet and with just moisture, they don't work well. Um, and so really interesting. Yeah, and I've seen the, some pictures that healthcare workers have posted online where it's also they're getting abrasions actually on their face from so much use. They are really difficult to wear. They're not comfortable, but they do, they do provide protection for the person wearing it, where the other masks are really just to protect everyone else. So I did a procedure in my office yesterday. I put one of these on. It was so uncomfortable. I took it right off and I put right. on the regular one. Are they still uh, in a shortage situation? They are. So we have to remember these types of PPEs, these N95 respirators, not for the average public, nor would you really want them to be. Right, because you're taking it out of the hands of somebody who Correct. desperately needs it. Absolutely. All right. Is it safe to start getting elective surgeries again? For the most part, Amy, the answer is yes. This is going to vary state to state, but a vast majority of the states in the country right now have given the green light for elective procedures uh, to start again. And people can be reassured that there are Absolutely more precautions now in place than ever. But remember that hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers were always under very, very strict infection control guidelines at baseline. So right. short answer is yes, they can continue. So this next question, actually, we're going to be tackling this mm -hmm. in a bit with our Becky Worley. What are some safer, low-risk outdoor activities we can do in this warmer weather? Keyword there is outdoor. So again, the four elements you want to keep in mind, space, time, people, and place. So space, the more, farther apart you are in between you and another person or in the environment, the better. Time, how much time you are standing in one place. So things that you're actually moving will be safer than where you're stationary. How many people you're doing it with. Again, that density of that, um, those people and the place. Outdoor, generally considered to be significantly safer than indoor. And the more ventilation, the more air moving, the better. All right. Next question. How likely are you to get sick from aerosol particles, such as someone coughing in the next shopping aisle, and then you walking past a few minutes later? Short answer, probably not that likely. But there was a recent study uh, that I found fascinating, just published in The Lancet, where, again, they did a simulation of spray testing. They used a laser light kind of refraction to track these large particles. And they found that for the most part, larger particles that are emitted when someone coughs and sneezes really fall to the floor pretty quickly. Um, but again, that is why the person shopping and sneezing should wear a mask and the person coming around in that aisle should wear a mask. So really important. You just led beautifully to the next question. <laughs> and actually, my husband and I had an argument about this yesterday. Here's the next mm. question. Should we be sneezing in our mask 
or remove the mask and sneeze on our elbow. What did you say? Well, I said you should sneeze in your mask, and my husband took his off to sneeze, and I said that is so wrong. Oh, no, no, Andrew. No. Okay, good. So I was right. You were right. Yeah, sorry, of I course. Wrong. I mean, doesn't that, that should be the assumption. Um, <laughs> listen, the point is, is that that is exactly why we are being recommended to wear masks to be a barrier or a blockade for the emission of viral particles, not just when we cough and sneeze, in particular, because remember, again, those masks were always recommended to be put on sick people to prevent them from spreading the disease or virus to other people. But even when we're breathing, talking. Yeah. So, yes, it is pretty disgusting to sneeze into your mask. I get that. But that's why we have and d- this will be dirty if you sneeze into your arm. But in the covid setting, the mask stays on. But as we talked about yesterday, there is a study that showed that there are jets of air yeah. that come out the side and potentially the bottom. So it's not a complete right. Uh, 100% blockade. And fair to note, I was the only person standing next to him. So um, anyway. <laughs> doesn't matter. I live with him anyway. So, but <laughs> score one for Amy, zero for Andrew. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, thank you very <laughs> much, Dr. Jen. You can submit questions to Dr. Jen on her Instagram at Dr. J Ashton. As the weather continues to warm up, I know people are itching to get out and enjoy summer activities. But what is really safe, and how risky is too risky? Well, joining us now to set the record straight with some risk assessment from top virus experts is Becky Worley. So, Becky, thanks for being with us. And I understand you have a game planned here. That That is right, Amy. If you're game uh, for our game, we know people, as you said, are starting to plan social and recreational activities. I've talked to a ton of uh, immunologists and virus experts. And based on an assessment that we heard first on Morning Edition, here's our game. I'm going to name an activity. You tell me what you think about the risk involved, okay? So we're going to start with camping. What do you think? Low, medium, or high risk? All right, well, I'm hoping it's low because I'm going to be doing this in a couple weeks. (laughs) You are correct and be relieved. Camping indeed is low. It's the act of going outside in less densely populated areas, which Dr. Jen just talked about is the key, less densely populated So for all activities like this, it's about the other people around. The beach, low risk if you can stay distant. The pool, the water is not an infection vehicle because it disperses any infectious droplets. Plus chlorine, my eyes are just stinging about thinking about how much they're going to use this summer. So (laughs) next activity, outdoor wedding. Mm. It's between medium or high. Uh, I'm going to go with high. High. Any gathering of more than 10 people, so that number is important, is a higher risk inside or out. Inside, much more dangerous, but outside, still pretty much a risk because people are talking. They're trying not to hug. You're seeing your family. That would be awkward not to hug. Uh, Also, alcohol involved. After that second glass of rosé, all bets are off, keeping six feet apart. That is such Um, a good point. I hadn't even thought about that, but you're right. Yeah, and Captain Obvious reporting here, any gatherings <laughs> indoors that have alcohol, yeah. bars, nightclubs, whoo, high, high risk. Okay. All right, we're going to move to our lightning round, okay? Right. Backyard gathering with one or two other families. Medium. That's right, low to medium. The caveat, bring your own everything, glasses, drinks, utensils, don't share food. Bring your own food or get stuff that's already individually packed. Next, vacation home. Mm, low. Yes. Time between guests and stepped up cleaning protocols. Experts feel pretty good. This is a good option. Many saying the same of hotels, but there's more exposure to other people as you go in and out of the hotels. So that's a variable. Okay, road trips. And that means 
public bathrooms. Oh, see, I'm doing a road trip in an RV with my own bathroom. But the public bathroom thing, I'm going to go with the medium to high. Yeah, medium. The trick is to wear your mask, use hand sanitizer afterwards. And if it's like a single room, wait a minute or two after the previous person leaves. So I think you fared pretty well in our game show and you're ready for your (laughs) RV camping road trip with a husband who wears a mask when he sneezes. Yay. All right. I'm very excited. And he's going to love the shout out that I just gave to America on what he didn't do right yesterday. All right. Becky Worley. Thank we you so much. We still love him. <laughs> thank you. Well, it is Faith Friday here at ABC. And today it is all about self-compassion. And here to talk about this is teacher, psychologist and author of Radical Compassion, Learning to Love Yourself and Your World with the Practice of Rain. We have Tara Brock with us. Tara, thank you for being with us. And I know that you've described the current times as a cluster of if. So what are you teaching right now to help us deal with that? Well, life's always uncertain. And right now we're totally having to face it. So, of course, pervasive anxiety and a lot of people feeling lonely and not knowing when they're going to get that next hug and people feeling short tempered with each other. But one of the big ones, Amy, is that when we're anxious and when we're stressed, we turn on ourselves and we get, we can be vicious in our self-judgment. I'm not parenting well enough. You know, I'm not doing the homeschooling right. I'm, I'm eating too much. I'm not writing that novel. I'm not doing the pandemic right. I'm not helping others. And I call it a trance of unworthiness because it's, it's so painful. And it helps to know that others are feeling this too. We, we're not alone. And it's really natural. The more stressed we are, the more reactive we get. And there is a pathway to finding a kind of inner calm or inner refuge. And what I guide people with is kind of two main elements. And one is learning how to pause and and come right here into the moment. Take a few deep breaths, be right here, notice the color of the sky, or notice the feeling of the air on our skin, or notice Again, the feeling of the movement of the breath, but be right here. And the second element is offer some kindness to yourself. You know, there's, there's an understanding that um, be kind. Everyone you meet is struggling hard. And that includes ourselves. And when we can, in some way, offer some kindness inwardly, and I'm putting my hand on my heart because I often will just gently touch my heart and say, you know, it's okay, sweetheart, or, you know, just you're, try, you're trying your best. It's okay, you know, some comfort. Then we find that we're much more open-hearted with each other. Um, it's like being together, you know, on a boat right now in a storm. That's what's going on. And if we know how to kind of get to that inner refuge of calming and being present and, and being open-hearted, um, we can help others make it through. But the challenge, as we know, is so many of us get just caught in that obsessive fear thinking and get lost and get reactive. And then then there's a lot of pain during this crisis. Yeah, that, that obsessive fear thinking tends to hit me right when I'm going to bed. Where would you advise people to channel that obsessive thinking that I think a lot of us are dealing with in these times? We are. That's what happens when we get anxious. So the mind speeds up. So we can learn 
to actually pause. I call it the sacred art of pausing, where we actually stop and say, okay, that's the story. What's right here? And maybe take a few long, deep breaths and feel ourselves right back in our body and in our senses. And there's other things we can do. I often will say to my fearful thoughts, thank you for trying to protect me, but I'm okay right now. Because usually right now we are okay. And sending that message helps to calm us down. Um, Other ways we can quiet our mind is moving, moving mindfully, moving in nature. Nature really helps us to calm down. And I think the big one, Amy, is we need to stay connected with each other. I mean, again, everyone's struggling hard. And it's so powerful to start wondering, well, how are you doing? How's this other person doing? You know, what's it like being you? And offering our care. And there's so much science that shows that in the moments that we're feeling caring and compassionate towards others, actually our hearts lighten up some. And the last thing I'll mention in terms of obsessive thinking is in the moments when something lovely happens, like you see, you hear your child's laugh or you see a a beautiful spring flower or whatever it is, pause and take it in. Three full breaths, just appreciating. Gratitude is the sweetest thing in the world and it quiets us down. One friend of mine just said, just watching the birds at the feeder, something she hadn't done in the past. And there's something about crisis that it's a disruption. It brings up all our reactivity. But it's also an opportunity to change our habit patterns and find more of that inner refuge, more presence, more gratitude. I love that. And I have to say, my shoulders have relaxed just listening to your words of wisdom and your voice over these past few minutes. So thank you. Tara Brock, we will take some of what you've said and put it into practice starting this weekend. Thank you. The school year may have already ended for a lot of students out there, but there is still so much to be learned from my next guest. During the pandemic, she has organized and delivered donations of over 1,500 art kits to kids in need. And guess what? She's 10 years old. We are so excited to have Chelsea Fair with us now to tell us all about her project. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us. Tell us what inspired you to start making and then donating all of those art kits. Um, About five years ago, I was on a vacation and I saw a lot of homeless people and I couldn't understand why they couldn't go home. And my mom and my dad had a talk with me that um, everyone doesn't have a home. And um, since then, I've been asking if we could start Chelsea's charity. A few years later, I received a very elaborate art kit from a family friend. My mom was like, don't break all those crayons. Not everyone has these things. And I didn't understand why. So we had another talk that everyone doesn't have access to art. And that made me so sad because art has helped me um, do so many things and get me through tough times in my life. So that's what inspired me to start Chelsea's Charity. Wow. Well, you make us so happy just listening to all of that kindness and all of that intelligence just pour out of you starting at the age of five. And you started this, as you mentioned, before the pandemic. And then you kept it going now with another 1,500 kids. Who's helping you put this all together? My mom is a big part of my charity and my brother, he is the best organizer in the world. He's so supportive. And my dad, we have like an assembly line, like Corey, my little brother, Corey will organize. My mom and I will make kits. My mom does the post. 
um, and ask people if there's any sites we can donate to. And my dad, once we pack up all of the kits in a box, my dad does all the heavy lifting into the car and to the post office. Well, I want to be a member of your family. I love that you have a supportive brother, too. That's like icing on the cake there. How does it make you feel to do something so special for so many kids? It makes me really happy just knowing that I'm making other kids happy and spreading my art of my love of art to the world. Oh, you are spreading that. And we want to do something for you. So before we let you go, we have a little surprise. Barbara's, who creates wholesome food that tastes delicious, will heard about the work you've been doing. And they are giving you $5,000 to your charity. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh, you deserve it. You deserve every penny of that, Chelsea. And we're so excited to help you keep up the great work you are doing so much for so many. Your reaction is priceless. Thank you so much for giving us so much joy today. Oh, my goodness. You are the best. Thank you so much. You're oh, the best. You know, big thank you, Oscar. Oh, and you know what? Tell your parents thank you, too, because they've done a very good job raising such a wonderful young woman. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. <laughs> And that's our program for today. I'm Amy Robach. Thanks for listening. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.